This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Support for Dear World Love History comes from Manscaped, the best in gentlemen's below-the-waistcoat grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Tis the season for celebrations and merrymaking, a time to spend with family, friends, and, of course, the gossiping echelon familiar to all but whose company is enjoyed by few. When you attend these balls and banquets and the gossiping gullies start wagging their tongues, you don't just want to look good, you want to feel good, too. So give the people something to talk about, gentlemen, other than who is or isn't in attendance with you. Good heavens, what could we possibly mean? Grooming isn't just for the face, sirs, but also for the more uh, sensitive areas of one person. With the lawnmower 2.0, just one part of the perfect package 2.0, your valet won't have to get anywhere near your whirligigs. It's a one-person job, just you, your electric trimmer, and a soon-to-be-tamed sable fur. Don't worry about any nicks. When paired with a crop preserver, an anti-chafing deodorant and moisturizer, you'll feel fresh and smell better than ever. Get 20% off and free shipping with code BIGHEADS at manscaped.com. Hello, gentle listeners. We wanted to... Hold on. Something's wrong. Yeah, that's better. Hey, and welcome to this episode of the Dear World Love History Podcast. Where the history is wacky and so are we. You're hanging out with the outlandish historians, Adrian And Renee. So sit back, relax, maybe take some notes. She's kidding. And enjoy this crazy time travel thing we do. Hey guys, and welcome to this episode of the Dear World Love History Podcast. We are so sorry for the delay in getting this episode out to you. If you follow us on social media, you might have seen the reason we had a really rough October. Okay, our grandfather passed away the week after Yom Kippur, and it was just really hard getting back into the swing of things. Our grandfather meant a lot to us, more than we can ever say. He helped raise us, was there for us our entire freaking lives, okay? Whenever we needed him... All of it. He was there before we even knew we needed him. All right. Losing him was absolutely devastating. So thank you so much for sticking with us and for any and all well wishes. You guys helped us get through the first few days. No, but seriously, thanks, guys. So anyway, about the episode. In this episode, we'll be heading back to the darkened streets of Victorian London. We're taking a look at one of the most famous serial killers in history, Jack the Ripper and his victims. And guys, this is rated explicit for more than our awesome language skills. Most of these women were brutalized after death, okay? So we're going to be very explicit with our descriptions because they deserve that. This means talking about exactly what was done to them. If words like vagina genitals and breasts make you uncomfortable consider yourself warned this episode features promos from the body count podcast and fatalities both of which are absolutely amazing seriously check them out the promos are as always at the end of the episode a few announcements first first off dear world love history celebrated its one-year anniversary on november 5th and we also celebrated adrian's birthday on the same day super exciting another one hiatus we're so sorry so sorry for the long wait between the Romanovs and Jack the Ripper. We didn't mean to push it back so much, but after this episode, we're going on hiatus until February. With everything that's happened in October, which was emotionally and mentally draining, we just need to take some time away. We will still be working on the podcast behind the scenes, but a new episode won't be out until the first Saturday of February. 
We pretty much work on the podcast anytime we're not working out of day jobs, so we need a tiny, teensy little break. By taking this hiatus, we get to take some time off and spend more time with our family. Plus, the holidays are coming up, and it's going to be busy, busy. We promise we'll be back with a new topic, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, in just a few months. And it's going to be good. We'll put up a short five-minute or so announcement in December revealing our next topic and giving you guys any updates. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at Dear Historians for behind-the-scenes tales during our hiatus. Now, it's that time. Okay, it is time to announce our two giveaway winners. Wait for it! Our two winners are Kara from the United States and Helen from Australia. Congratulations, you two. We will be sending out your goodies in the next few days. We'll let you know as soon as we do. With that, the announcements are officially over. Hurrah! It's time to head on back to Whitechapel, London, 1888. So let's set the scene. In the fall of 1888, an unknown serial killer stalked the streets of the East End, striking fear and horror into the inhabitants of the area, and Greater London as well. Now, if you're imagining fog-thickened streets during the murders, stop that right now. This isn't that kind of story. Ominous fog did not roll in while he killed. Jack the Ripper has never been caught or identified, and it wasn't weather that confounded the police. Speaking of, let's introduce the police force of London and, more importantly, the East End itself. The Victorian police force of London hadn't been around for too long by the time the Ripper murders started. That didn't mean they didn't know what they were doing, but it took centuries to get the police force of 1888 in order. To start with, London police were split into two different entities. All cops, but basically two different forces. The Metropolitan Police and the City of London Police. Before this true police force was created, there were watchmen and beetles, which were paid for through taxes. Parishes that couldn't pay didn't get the manpower, so they had more crime in their areas as a result. And the watchmen could be just as corrupt as the criminals they were meant to keep an eye on. Go figure. Then came the Bow Street Runners, as they were known at the time. By the way, they did not like this name. Anyway, they definitely helped keep crime at bay, and they were really the first professional police force London put together. They were around from 1748 to 1839. This was in addition to all the corrupt dudes wandering around not solving crime. And they worked, to a point, which is good because the people of London didn't have much faith in their protectors up to this point. Not a lot of trust there. In 1798, the Marine Police Force came along. They were the guys in charge of policing the docks. They also did their jobs, like they were supposed to. Hurrah! Another win for London. Yay. But the criminal element just kept going up and up and up. So what was London to do? Hmm. In 1829, the Metropolitan Police Act gave birth to the Metropolitan Police. Say that five times fast. The city of London, however, said, "Mm, No thanks. Please don't put our name on that act. The city felt their watchmen and patrols were good enough. Side note. There's the City of London and Greater London, even today. The city is where a lot of the wealthier lords, ladies, and gentlemen lived. It's the historic center of the city, Zone 1 if you're looking at the tube map. It's where London started, hello Romans, before expanding into the many boroughs and wards of the Victorian era, which took centuries to happen. Fun fact, London was originally called Londinium by the Romans. Super fun to say. So eventually, the Bow Street office and the Marine Force became one with the Metropolitan Police. In 1839, the City of London finally had their own police force. No more watchmen for them. They now had the newly minted City of London Police, based off the model set by the Metropolitan Police. Then in 1842, detectives became a thing, and these detectives were the ones investigating the Whitechapel murders. As for Whitechapel itself, there were about 76,000 people living in the area during the Whitechapel murders. 
For these 76,000 people, there were 584 cops to police the entire area. The East End was made up of slums, lodging houses, brothels, darkened corners, and alleyways. It was populated by immigrants, the poor, the downtrodden, and the homeless, of course. Disease ran rampant through the area, and quite a few kids never lived long enough to become adults or teenagers. It was an overcrowded area with too many people and not even remotely enough space. Or cleanliness, if we're being honest. There were plenty of people living in the East End because that's just where they lived, where they grew up, or because the living was cheaper, all right? But there was also a lot of folks who couldn't afford a bed for the night, so they turned to drinking, thieving, and for women, unfortunately, walking the streets. Crime in Whitechapel wasn't unusual, and the denizens weren't too keen on going near the police, let alone actually going to them for help. Okay, a lot of the immigrants didn't have good memories of the police from their home countries, which included Eastern European Jews escaping persecution, and the Irish. You know, even bigger trust issues there. In some ways, the law of Whitechapel was survival of the fittest, honestly, so some people had a daily battle with their own vices or the vices of others. It was truly the worst part of London, and the only other area in the world that was similar at that time was Five Points in Manhattan. So, why all this background, you ask? All right, we'll answer. To really understand the ins and outs of the Jack the Ripper murders. How did this murder go undetected? Why Whitechapel? And most importantly, how did he escape the police? Well, let's dive on into the murders and get some answers. Officially known as the Whitechapel murders, the file is made up of 11 different victims, all women. Five of these murders are known as the Canonical Five, aka the five women that were really considered victims of Jack the Ripper. The rest of them are kind of a big question mark. Were they? Weren't they? We'll give all the facts, analyze them, and let you guys decide. Emma Elizabeth Smith, age 45-ish, 5'2", light brown hair, was the first of the Whitechapel murder victims. The only information she ever shared with the people around her was that she was a widow. She was the mother of two children, and they didn't live in Whitechapel with her. While Emma was married once, she had separated from her husband more than 10 years before she died. She paid four pence every night for a bed and spent what little money she had on drink. It wasn't unusual for her to be out all night long. This is basically all we know about her. On the night of April 3rd, 1888, Emma Smith was attacked by three men who beat her and robbed her. Instead of heading to the hospital or, you know, asking a cop for help, she went to the lodging house that she was staying in. Two women she knew, Mary Russell and Annie Lee, took her to the hospital as soon as they saw her. This was around 5 a.m. So what were her wounds, this murder victim who was still alive? Her head was beaten, they almost took one of her ears off, and she was bleeding heavily from her genitals. Picture this. Emma Smith is brutally beaten, then, instead of calling for help, she picks herself up and passes by any police without saying a word to get back to her lodgings. Her friends then take her to the hospital without stopping a police officer. All this time, she's in severe pain and bleeding heavily. Here's that whole lack of trust of the police in play, okay? The police never did get a description of the man who attacked her. Whatever they used to beat her with had stabbed through the lining of her abdominal cavity. The peritoneum, how so? Not through her stomach, but through her genitals, while she was conscious. And it was done more than once, okay? This was a super violent attack. Oh, and it was some sort of blunt something or other. All right, super great. When Emma was questioned by the doctor, she said all those injuries happened because they were trying to rob her. Even if that was part of it, clearly those men meant to hurt her. And we mean really hurt her. Maybe even kill her. All right, so this all happened around 1.30 in the morning. 
She went to the hospital around 5 a.m. On April 4th, around 9 in the morning, Emma Smith died of her injuries. According to the doctor, it was due to peritonitis, a.k.a. an infection of her abdominal cavity. Was Emma Smith the first of the Jack the Ripper killings? Was the man finding his feet? Or was her murder, awful as it is to say, a coincidence? Something to ponder. Now, on August 7th, 1888, a woman by the name of Martha Tabram was found murdered in what passed for an apartment building at that time. Really, it was tenement housing. There could be several families packed into one room. One dude actually came home at 3.30 in the morning, saw her body and shrugged. Well, just another drunkard lying in the stairwell. Apparently, this was a thing that happened all the time in Whitechapel. Makes you feel safe. Another witness found the body when he was leaving the building at 4.45 a.m. Unlike guy number one, he actually ran off to find a policeman. The murderer was able to get in the building with Martha, do the evil deed, and slip right back out again without anyone noticing a thing, with no evidence left behind, no weapons, no footprints, nada. Martha Tabram, aged 39 at the time of death, 5'3 with dark hair, was stabbed 39 times, ironically enough. Her clothing was a mess, not smoothed down. To start with, Martha had been dead for three hours by the time the coroner came on the scene. And the stab wound that did her in is anyone's guess. Her lung had been stabbed five times. There were two in the right lung, five in the liver, two in the spleen, six in the stomach, one in the heart. Though the stab wound apparently to the heart could have caused her death. But did it? We don't know. The important thing here is that Martha was alive throughout her entire assault. The murderer obviously used some sort of knife to literally stab her to death. One knife, two knives, anything more than sharp is unknown. But... Dr. Killeen, who examined the body, said one of these wounds was not like the others. Why? Because whatever the murderer used for this wound went right through the chest bone. So, who was Martha? Well, she went by a few different names. Martha Tabram and Martha Turner being two of them. Based on all of our research, this wasn't uncommon for women in Whitechapel, especially prostitutes. And Martha Tabram did walk the streets. Just like Emma Smith. Starting to sound familiar, right? Martha was married to Henry Samuel Tabram in 1869. Then, six years later, they started living separate lives. Apparently, Martha was quite the heavy drinker. For a while, he gave her money and then cut it down to pennies when he discovered she was shacking up with another dude. Multiple names meant it took a while to identify her. The guy she was living with was another Henry, Henry Turner. Ironically, a few weeks before her murder, she and Turner split up. He couldn't take her drinking anymore either. Like Emma Smith, she spent all her money on alcohol. Martha also went by the name of Emma, another irony. Finally, her identity was revealed, courtesy of her friend Mary Ann Connolly, also known as Pearly Paul. See what I mean? Many names. But really, it's not a shock that they wouldn't want any of their customers to know their real name, is it, right? Nah. So this Pearly Paul comes on the scene and tells the cops that she and Martha were out together the night of her murder. They met a couple of soldiers and then went their separate ways with their respective fellas. This was after they apparently went on a really long walk as a group. Oh, and get this. The reports of that time didn't call prostitution prostitution or whoring or any other lovely terms invented over the centuries. They were all Victorian politeness. Immoral purpose equals prostitution. An unfortunate is a prostitute. Walking the streets, prostitution. Anyway, Pearly Paul told the cops she'd know these guys anywhere. As a result, Inspector Reed, one of the inspectors who'd be involved with the murder starting with Emma Smith, asked her to pick the soldiers out of a lineup. The first time, she didn't even show up. The second time, she couldn't pick them out. Wait! It wasn't because she didn't recognize them. It's because they were looking at the wrong types of soldiers. Duh! 
silly Pearly Paul. Right? So off they went to the Wellington barracks, and Pearly Paul picked out two guys. Those are them, Inspector. But no, no they weren't. Their alibis were checked and verified. Strike two for Pearly Paul. A police constable, that's really what they were called, police constables, by the name of Barrett, also saw some soldiers the night of the murder. He'd also recognize them anywhere. Except, no, he really couldn't. He picked out a couple of guys, all of whom had alibis. Back to the drawing board for the police. For Inspector Reed, these two so-called witnesses were absolutely useless. Like Emma Smith, Martha Tabram's murder was an ongoing investigation. After each victim was found and their body examined, an inquest took place, with a jury and witnesses being called the whole shebang. The point of it was to determine how the person died, be it murder or natural. After hearing all the evidence and testimonies, the jury would deliberate and then come back with a verdict. In the cases of Emma Smith and Martha Tabram, per the Ripper source book, the verdict was willful murder against some person or persons unknown. Shock. So Mary Ann Nichols was the third murder in the Whitechapel murder files, but the first in what is known as the Canonical Five. These were the five women the authorities of the time, and people today, were pretty certain, mostly, were the victims of Jack the Ripper. Here's a pretty familiar thread with these ladies. Mary Ann Nichols was married, but at some point split from her husband. He couldn't take her drinking. She was also the absentee mother of five kids. The husband was paying her some money until he found out that she was a lady of the streets selling the only thing she had to give. Then he stopped giving her money entirely, because that definitely helped matters. Over the years, she could be found at a variety of workhouses, which was worse than a lodging house. In a lodging house, you paid for your bed with your money, and then you went out and did whatever it was you wanted. In a workhouse, you got a bed, something to eat, which wasn't tasty, but it was meant to keep people healthy in exchange for work. You're thinking, maybe it doesn't sound that bad? Yeah. The people there were actually known as inmates. If you wanted to sleep and eat, you had to work for it and keep to the schedule made for you. No time for leisure or outings. Marianne was 45 years old, around 5'2 or 5'3 in height, with dark hair that had some gray in it and brown eyes. On August 31st, mere weeks after Martha Tabram, she was found dead on Bucks Row. Her skirts pulled up just above her knees. Her throat was slit right across, cutting all the way through her windpipe and spinal cord. Okay, basically, the killer almost took her head off. Oh, and then the killer also cut her open, starting below the breasts, right? He disemboweled her, mutilated her genitals by stabbing her twice in that area. Five wounds in total. A lot of her blood ended up on the outside of her body. According to the coroner, the murderer cut her throat when she was already lying on the ground, not while she was standing up. No one heard Mary scream. Not the people who lived nearby, not the police on patrol. Her body was found where the foul deed was done. The last time she was seen alive was around 2.30 a.m., drunk as a skunk, heading off to the area she died in. Her body was found at 3.45 a.m. What she did and who she met during that hour and 45-minute gap is a mystery. So how many witnesses does it take to find a police constable? Two. George Cross found Mary first when he was coming home. She looks dead to me. Time to find a friend. He found another dude and brought him back. She's dead, right? The other guy said, nah, she's not dead. She's still breathing. Off they both went to find a cop to bring him back to the body. Fucking hell. What a circus. That was the creation of the buddy system, guys. (laughs) So why didn't anyone hear her being murdered? Yet another mystery. Off the police went, asking the good citizens of Whitechapel if they heard anything or saw anything. And every time they came up empty. Already, though, their wheels were turning. Light bulb! There have already been two murders. Maybe this is the same guy. 
Not that it helped because they didn't have any suspects for the first two murders either. And once again, the murderer didn't leave any clues behind. Now, what sort of blades he used or anything that could be used to find him. And most importantly, no one saw him come or go from the area where he murdered poor Mary Ann Nichols. So why was Mary out on the streets so early in the morning? Or late at night, whichever way you look at it. She had to earn some money for the lodging house. The first real suspect considered for the murders was a dude by the name of John Pizer, otherwise known as Leather Apron. Very anonymous. For a while, he looked like the guy the cops were looking for since he seemed to have something against prostitutes. He really liked to blackmail them and then beat them when they didn't pay up. Mm, nice guy. He was questioned, his alibis checked, and crisscross applesauce? Not the murderer. A creep and an asshole, sure. But a serial killer? Not so much. There was a police constable whose route took him past Bucks Row every 30 minutes. If so, that meant he walked by that spot at 3.15, because when he walked by the street at 3.45, another constable flagged him down the street with his lamp. Oh look, a dead body. The question is, when he passed by at 3.15, how long had Mary been dead for? Or was it just before she met her end? And more importantly, was the murderer still there, lurking in the shadows, or was he already long gone? I know we're throwing a lot of unanswered questions at you. Even better than this, another cop, Constable Neal, swore he had actually been at the exact spot the murder was committed at 3.15 a.m. If that's the case, Mr. Ripper was able to get in, kill Mary Ann Nichols, cut her up, and get out of there without being seen, heard, or bumping into the various constables walking the streets in that area in less than half an hour. And if someone did so happen to see a guy with blood on his hands in that area... At that time, he might have been written off as just another slaughterhouse worker living and working in the area. There were a shit ton of slaughterhouses in Whitechapel, so a dude wandering around with knives or bloody hands, not really that shocking. The jury's verdict? Willful murder against some person or persons unknown. Lerda. It didn't take long for the next body to drop. On September 8th, Annie Chapman's body was found in the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street at 6 in the morning. She was 5'2", age 45, with fair skin and dark brown hair. She was a prostitute and left in the early hours of the morning to earn some money for her lodging. And by lodging, we mean a bed at the lodging house. Starting to see the pattern? Like all the things these women have in common? Annie was a widow, but even before her husband died, they weren't living together. Another wife with a drinking problem, another husband who couldn't stand it. She was the mother of two, but yet again, they didn't live with her. By the time Annie Chapman was found, she'd been dead for about two hours. Well, according to Dr. Phillips' initial exam, anyways. However, Dr. Phillips did say later on that the time of death could have been later since it was chillier outside. Her body would have lost heat faster, which made it seem like she was dead longer. Which means Annie could have been killed within the 30 minutes two witnesses allegedly saw her. At 5.25 a.m., a guy from the next building over overheard a man and a woman chatting. The only clear thing he heard was someone saying no. He left the yard, came back, and then heard a thump against the fence. A woman said she caught sight of a couple chatting up near 29 Hanbury at 5.30 a.m. He said, will you? And she said, yes. Interesting. Basically, the entire conversation is missing. The female witness did get a peek at the dude. Not the best one, but according to her, this guy was over 40 and he had a few inches on the woman he was with. And the woman was, according to her, definitely Annie Chapman. So was it Annie and Jack the Ripper? There's no way to know for sure. If the original time of death is wrong, it's definitely possible. But if Dr. Phillips was right and Annie had been dead for two plus hours, then this man and woman combo were just a coincidence. What was done to Marianne Nichols 
was just the beginning. Annie Chapman was the progression. No signs of a struggle, even though the killer might have suffocated her before cutting her throat. Like Marianne Nichols, her throat was slit, a deep cut, while she was lying flat on the ground on her back. Annie Chapman wore two brass rings on her finger, and they were both gone after she was murdered. They were never found. If the killer was the one who stole her rings, that wasn't all he took. He cut her open and disemboweled her, draping some of her own intestines over her right shoulder. Other organs he put over her left shoulder. He stole off into the morning with her uterus. The way this guy cut her open and took out her organs suggested that he knew what he was doing. He had some sort of knowledge of anatomy, human or otherwise. One theory posed during the inquest was that the killer actually knew a lot about the human body and how to cut one open. The killer could have been someone who performed post-mortem exams and autopsies. An interesting thought. Yet again, not a soul was seen leaving the scene of the crime. No human covered in blood was seen in the area. In any way. Before her body was found, one of the guys who lives in the building actually sat on the steps leading into the yard to cut some leather off his boot. According to him, there was no body. Nobody in the backyard. But the door was also opened in a way that would have hidden her body from view since she was left exactly where she was killed, between the stairs and the fence. So did this dude cut leather off his boot next to a dead body with her insides on the outside? As for suspects, this is really where it starts to amp up. More men questioned, arrested, released. Alibis were verified. And there was also a lack of evidence in play. A butcher by the name of Joseph slash Jacob, we're really not sure because that's how they have it in the actual reports, Joseph, Jacob, Eisenschmidt was arrested. But there was no evidence of him having committed the murders. But since he was considered a lunatic, he seemed like a viable suspect at the time. Survey says, not the Ripper. Following the murder of Annie Chapman, some interesting writings seemed to pop up. According to the press, there was a message written on the fence, and it read, Five, fifteen more, and then I give myself up. The killer didn't leave a trace, but then took the time to write a message on the wall? Not likely. Another message was also written on the wall, at Hanbury Street. How amazing! I have now done three, and intend to do nine more and give myself up. I mean, it's really nice that the killer carried something around with him so he could write on the wall after he killed someone, Way to plan ahead, dude. Do you think this is the point where the media and press started making things up so they could sell more newspapers? Because they sure as hell were making a lot of money off of Jack the Ripper and his victims. And not just in London, but all over the world. On September 27th, the Central News Agency received a very interesting letter, creepy enough to give anyone the heebie-jeebies. Quote, Dear boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I am down on whores and I shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Grand work, the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope, ha ha. The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, and I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off of my hands. Curse it. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha ha. And this is where the name Jack the Ripper was born. The very first Dear Boss letter. So, did the killer write this letter and send it in to taunt someone? If he were taunting the police, wouldn't he have sent it directly to the cops? But instead, it was sent to Central News. 
makes you wonder who wrote it and why they sent it where they did. Two days after getting the letter, Central News gave it over to the police. When the police got it, they thought it was a joke, someone having fun at the expense of the public and the murderer's victims. But then came the double event, and the letter looked a little bit more serious. Curiously enough, the letter was full of words an American of the time would have used. Boss, fix me, and quit. Curiouser and curiouser. Speaking of the double event, as it came to be known, in one night, Jack the Ripper killed two different women, assuming, of course, that both murders were in fact done by the same killer. On September 30th at 1 in the morning, Elizabeth Stride was found on Burner Street, her throat cut, and nothing else. No disembowelment, no organs missing, nothing. Yet another prostitute out on Whitechapel streets, unfortunate enough to cross paths with the serial killer. Elizabeth Stride was a widow, age 36 to 38, who was not a London native. She was born in Stockholm, Sweden, and had emigrated to London in 1866. She married John Stride in 1869. They ran a coffee shop together, but apparently their marriage wasn't going well towards the end. And then he died in 1884. And in 1885, she started living with a new guy. Stride was also prone to taking to the bottle and a prostitute by trade after her marriage. P.S. She also went by different names. Long Liz... Epileptic Annie, that's an interesting one, Hippie, Lip, Annie, Mothergum, and Annie Fitzgerald. Like the other murders, the cut to her throat was deep. And just like all the others, the murderer didn't leave any clues behind as to his identity. He was in and out like a ghost. Around 12.30 a.m., a cop saw Elizabeth chatting it up with a guy who was in his late 20s, 5'7", with a mustache, according to the police constable. And he was carrying a newspaper parcel. That doesn't seem important now but it just might later on. Then at 12.45 a.m., Israel Schwartz was walking down Burner Street towards the gate where Elizabeth Stride was found and saw some guy talking to some girl. Later, he identified her as Stride. So he sees this guy throw the woman to the ground. Lady screamed three times, but not loud enough to wake the neighborhood. Schwartz then ran away because he thought he was being chased by a second guy. Guy number one yelled out, Lipsky, to guy number two. Schwartz thought, and then guy number two started following Schwartz. Cue him running away. Was he following Schwartz? Who knows? Did those guys know each other, or was it something else? Another mystery. In any case, Schwartz said guy number one was about 30, five foot five, with dark hair, a mustache, and wearing different clothing from the dude the cop saw at 12.30. Guy number two was about 35, five foot 11, light brown hair, also had a mustache, and also wearing a different outfit from the first two guys. The important question is, was one of them actually Jack the Ripper? It could have been any of the men the police constable or Schwartz saw, or it could have been none of them. Stride wasn't found until 1 a.m., which meant there was another 5 to 10 minutes for her killer to catch up with her. At 1 a.m., Louis Diemschitz, I don't know if I said that correctly, I sincerely apologize for any mispronunciations in this episode. So anyway, Lewis was finally coming home, probably looking forward to getting some shut-eye. When the pony pulled Lewis's cart through the gate, the pony avoided something on the right-hand side. It was pretty dark, so Lewis couldn't see what had the pony so spooked. He saw some sort of shape, so he lit a match. Huh, looks like a woman. He went into the socialist club to get a candle so he could see better. As soon as he saw the blood, he booked it for the street so he could find some cops. Instead of a cop, he brought someone back who he bumped into in the street. Useful, right? Once the cops were on the scene, they checked out everyone in the socialist club. Their hands, their clothes, looking for any signs of blood. Everyone was cleared. They asked them and the people who lived in the area questions. Anyone see anything? Anyone see Stride alive? With anyone? 
People who just happened to be near Burner Street were questioned as well. The area near the club was also searched. They pretty much covered all their bases. Stride's body hadn't cooled by the time the doctor arrived at the scene. Her neck, face, legs, and chest were still on the warm side. The cut on her throat went through the windpipe and almost completely through the vessels on the left side of her neck. According to the doctor, Stride had been dead for about 20 to 30 minutes by the time he got there. Not long at all. So was the killer scared off by Lewis coming home with his cart and pony? Did something else send him running before he could finish what he set out to do? Or even more creepy, was he still lurking around when the cart pulled up? In any case, the doctor determined that Stride was killed while lying on the ground. The killer laid her down, by force or not, who knows? She could have been unconscious at that time. And slid her throat while sitting on her right, slicing left to right. Based on the way Stride was killed, the murderer may have walked away clean as a whistle, according to Dr. Phillips. The blood would have sprayed away from him, not towards him. There were multiple men taken in based on witness statements made to the police, butchers and slaughter workers as well. At this point, even sailors were being looked at. All suspects cleared, not a Jack the Ripper among them. Some dude did find a bloody knife with a handkerchief wrapped around the handle hours after the murder. The blood was dry by this point. He gave it to a constable who gave it to Dr. Phillips as evidence. After taking a look at the knife, Dr. Phillips said that a slicing knife, as it was called, could have been the blade that did the deed, but it would have been really uncomfortable to use it the way Stride was killed. So it probably wasn't the murder weapon. And neither were any knives like it. So where does the whole double event thing come in that we mentioned earlier? Right here, with the murder of Catherine Eddowes. If Jack the Ripper did in fact murder both women, he went from one murder site to a second and back out again without anyone seeing him. Scary. For the seven years prior to her death, Catherine Eddowes lived with John Kelly in a lodging house on Flower and Dean Street. Before this, she was married to a guy named Thomas Conway, whom she had two children with. Apparently, the husband split with Catherine since he couldn't stand her drinking or immoral habits a.k.a. prostitution. The split happened in 1880. On the night of September 29th, Catherine Eddowes was drunk as a skunk, unable to stand on her own two feet. At about 9.45 p.m., she was locked up in the drunk tank of Bishopsgate Street Police Station. She wasn't released until around 1 a.m. According to Henry Crawford, the City of London solicitor, who spoke to Catherine before she left the station, it was just under a 10-minute walk to Meter Square. No one saw her after this until her body was found. On September 30, 1888, City Police Constable Edward Watkins was walking his beat as usual. Around 1.30 in the morning, he walked through Meter Square and didn't see a thing. However, when he walked through again almost 15 minutes later, he came across the body of Catherine Eddowes lying in her own blood, her throat slashed and her abdomen completely ripped open. The killer ripped her open from the breastbone to the pubes. But it gets worse. Worse than ripped open? Sure does. Woman was completely exposed from the waist down. Her intestines were hanging out, a portion of them slung over her shoulder like a gross poop-covered scarf. Sorry for the imagery. Her liver had also been stabbed. And as if that wasn't bad enough, her face was disfigured. The tip of her nose cut off. A portion of her ear was cut off as well. The killer cut into her face, slicing the eyelids across the bridge of the nose, the cheeks, and even her lips. No portion of her face was left untouched. Oh, and she was still warm, which makes sense if you consider that Watkins hadn't seen anything when he was walking his beat. Whatever tool the killer used to inflict the wounds was super sharp, obviously. And like the previous murders, she was killed while lying on the ground. The only good news? She bled out quickly when her throat was cut. 
The bad news? Jack the Ripper stuck around after the fact to butcher this woman, and he accomplished this in less than 15 minutes, then disappeared without a trace. We're not going to get into all the things that were done to her, how he basically dissected her. It would take too long. There are literally pages in our research dedicated to how the killer ripped Catherine Eddowes apart internally. Considering all the bloodshed, there was nothing. No blood splatter, no bloody fingerprints, no bloody footprints to give the police an idea of where the killer went and how he got away without anyone seeing him or her. Inspector Edward Cullard examined the scene and didn't believe Eddowes had put up any kind of a struggle. This is a common theme between the murders. Weird, right? The one really weird thing about Catherine's murder was her apron. Catherine's apron was found by Metro PC Alfred Long at 2.55 a.m. while he was walking his beat on Goulston Street, Whitechapel. What's interesting here is that Long testified at the inquest that when he passed that spot earlier, around 2.20, there was nothing there. Then 35 minutes later, the apron appeared, as if by magic. Had the Ripper stayed close by to see things unfold? Was he making his way through the shadows of Whitechapel before leaving the apron there on purpose? So many questions with absolutely no answers. Frustration. There was also a fun message written on the wall near the bloody apron Alfred Long found. The Jews are the men who will not be blamed for nothing. Talk about causing a stir. This part of Whitechapel had a very heavy Jewish population, and the message plus the bloody apron would have people up in arms about the murderer being a Jew. Did the killer leave this message? Stop after throwing the apron to write it up? So not likely. But someone sure did write that up there, possibly to cause a ruckus or to blame the Jews. Anti-Semitism in London wasn't anything new. The police wanted to avoid any violence against the Jewish population and save lives. So they wrote the message down in a notebook and then erased it. The city police were pissed because they wanted to photograph the writing first. No dice. When Catherine's clothing was being taken off her, her ear actually fell out. Okay, onto the ground. After a post-mortem examination was done, the doctor discovered that the genitalia had been mutilated and the killer had made off with Catherine's left kidney and part of her uterus. Pretty much what we can take away from this is that Jack the Ripper wasn't just bumbling about inside Catherine's body. Every cut was made with precision. Several witnesses in the area were questioned and not one of them heard a damn thing. They didn't even know there'd been a murder until a constable knocked on their door and started asking questions. John Kelly, Catherine's man-friend, and Frederick William Wilkinson, deputy of the Flower and Dean Street Lodging House, both admitting to having zero know-how about Catherine walking the streets. A prostitute? A heavy drinker? Not Catherine. Absolutely not. She was a sweet woman, sold knick-knacks and doodads on the street, even told John she was going to find her daughter Annie to ask for a little bit of money. So were these men oblivious to what Catherine might have been doing? Was the night of her death a fluke, or was it two men not wanting to speak ill of the dead? Better people remember her fondly. For a hot second there, the police were on a manhunt for Thomas Conway, Catherine's ex-husband, but since he lived on a different planet, he didn't even know what had happened to Catherine or that the police wanted to talk to him. Eventually, though, the news did reach him and he was cleared as a suspect. What made this murder different, aside from the escalation was Catherine was the only victim murdered within the limits of the City of London police, not the Metropolitan. On October 16th, George Lusk, the chairman of the East End Vigilance Committee, a committee that was set up by, you know, regular citizens because they didn't trust the police to find the murderer or thought the police needed help. So he got an interesting letter and package delivered to him. And by interesting, we mean scary and completely gross because the sender enclosed half a kidney with his letter. This letter became known as the From Hell Letter, or the Lusk Letter. It reads, 
from hell. Mr. Lusk, sir, I send you half the kidney I took from one woman, preserved it for you. T'other piece I fried and ate. It was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if you only wait a while longer. Signed, catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. So when he showed it to his buddies in the committee, they told him to get the kidney checked out. He thought it was a joke. If that's what passes for a joke, in 19th century East London, count us out. So a doctor examined the kidney and, yeah, sure thing, the, it belonged to a human at one point. One who drank alcohol like water. So he handed it over to the police. Since they didn't have the tech we have today, or really any way to trace mail and the people who sent it, finding the man, or woman, who posted it was a shot in the dark. Could it have been from the killer? The real Jack the Ripper? Maybe. We think this one's much more possible than the Jack the Ripper letters. This letter was illiterate and creepy as fuck. No American nuances there, but there were some Irish. Did an Irishman send this letter, or was this another red herring? More importantly, was this the kidney that belonged to Catherine Eddowes? It's anyone's guess. The doctor who took a look at it said yes, but apparently the organ hadn't started decomposing yet, so maybe it actually wasn't Catherine's. Also, I think it's highly unlikely that an Irishman is going to write in an Irish accent in a letter. Like, you don't write in your, the way you speak. You wouldn't write in an accent. Unless you're doing it deliberately. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what I'm saying, though. But a normal Irishman who doesn't, especially doesn't want to draw attention to the fact that he's Irish. But more people don't write in their accents. Nope. That's what I'm getting at. Nope, nope, nope. Okay, so following the murder of Stryden Eddowes, a postcard was sent to the newspapers. This one read, I was not calling to your old boss when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about saucy Jackie's work tomorrow. Double event this time. Number one squealed a bit. Couldn't finish straight off. Had not time to get ears for police. Thanks for keeping back last letter till I get to work again. Jack the Ripper. So were these Jack the Ripper letters real? Eh, we don't buy it. But there is the question of how the hell did the writer know certain details? As with many things having to do with Jack the Ripper... It's a fucking mystery. October 1888 was a quiet one. Well, as quiet as it can be in Whitechapel during that hectic time. While Jack took a vacation, I know him so well I can call him Jack. A woman's torso was found in the basement of the New Scotland Yard building. Because where else does a killer leave a body or parts of one? This case became known as the Whitehall Mystery. Here's the thing. While there weren't any Ripper victims in October, that doesn't mean the cops were sitting on their asses. They were working round the clock questioning more people, bringing in suspects, and still getting absolutely nowhere. They were chasing their own tails some of the time. One of the people brought in was Charles Ludwig. In early November, he tried to kill a woman in Whitechapel by stabbing her. He also tried to stab some random guy. He failed and was taken in by the cops. Good news? He was off the streets for a solid two weeks. Bad news, he had alibis for the Knights of the Ripper murders. So they cut him loose and were back at square one. So since October was the quiet before the storm, that means there's a storm coming. So on November 9th, 1888, Mary Jane Kelly was... There really aren't words to describe what was done to her. She was butchered, mutilated, literally cut to pieces. She was the fifth and final of the canonical murders. Mary Jane Kelly went by a plethora of names, okay? She was also known as... Marie Jeanette Kelly, Black Mary, Fair Emma, Ginger, Mary Jane Lawrence, and MJ Taylor. When compared to the previous women, Kelly's profile is different and incomplete. We're not completely sure of her age since we only have the birth year, but at the time of her death, she was about 24, 25 years old. She was considered tall. What that means in numbers, no idea. 
Her hair color is a mystery. She was called Ginger, so a redhead? Maybe. She was also called Black Mary, so she was either going through an emo phase, had a crappy personality, or had dark hair. Who knows? Since Kelly didn't fit the Ripper's victim profile, there are some Ripperologists out there who don't believe Jack had anything to do with her murder. As far as we know, Kelly was born in Ireland but raised in Wales after her father moved the family there for work. She got married in 1879, but her husband died in an explosion a few years later. Now, take this information with a grain of salt. Here goes. Apparently, she became a prostitute a few years after that when she went to visit family in Cardiff. When she moved to London in 1884, she worked at a fancy brothel catering to high-class gents before moving to Whitechapel. Honestly, Mary Jane Kelly is a huge question mark. Her past is hazy, some of the information may or may not be true, and there's no way to confirm either way at this point, so Mary Jane Kelly remains the mysterious woman. On the morning of November 9, 1888, John Bauer discovered the body of Mary Jane Kelly when he was collecting the rents for the tenement building she lived in. When Kelly didn't answer the door, Bauer turned to look through a broken window. He left the actual peeping to his boss, John McCarthy. So it was McCarthy who got to see the carnage and what was left of Kelly. Not sure how he didn't pass out and vomit at the same time, but he managed to go get the police. Good for him. What they found when the door was kicked in likely gave them nightmares for the rest of their fucking lives. Blood soaking through the sheets and dripping onto the floor, Kelly's face was completely unrecognizable. The killer had cut off her nose and ears. Her breasts had been hacked off and placed on the table. She was completely ripped open and her organs had been taken out and placed around her. Portions of her were skinned down to the damn bone, okay? There was no part of her body that was left untouched. The photo of Mary Jane Kelly in her room is out there. We'll link you up in the episode description and our show notes. Based on the fact that he killed and ripped her apart in her own room, the killer obviously took his time. Also, a note about the photo. It may be late 19th century photography, but you see it all. It is creepy. It gave me nightmares for several weeks. Okay, I'd close my eyes and I would see Mary Jane Kelly laying on her bed, dismembered. So, well, not dismembered, but ripped apart. Um, So if you're squeamish, if you don't like blood and gore, if, you know, a woman cut apart uh, with her stuff around her and, uh, you know, a scary look on her face doesn't sit well with you, do not click the link and do not look at the photo. You have been warned. Yeah, don't do it, okay? My brain tried to shield me twice when I looked at those pictures, all right? And the third time, I think my brain said, that's it, fuck you, I tried to protect you, and then every time I closed my eyes, there it was. There was that picture of Mary Jane Kelly. Yeah, I try not to look at it at night so that I don't go to bed with that in my head. But anyway, back to the murder. So it, it was a horror show, you know? Even the doctors on the scene said they'd never seen anything like it. They weren't 100% sure, but some of her insights might have been taken as well. Unsurprisingly, the officers weren't able to find anything or anyone when they searched the area. They knocked on doors, asked questions, but it didn't matter. There were no answers to be had. So what events led to Kelly's death? She was out the night before, but while she'd been seen with a mystery man around 10 p.m., witnesses didn't see her with anyone by the time she was heading home after 11. Well, most witnesses. The only logical assumption would be that Kelly met her killer on the way home, not too far from her lodgings. The other tenants didn't hear anything other than Kelly singing Sweet Violets, as the song was called, around 1 a.m. No screams, nothing. Jack appeared like a ghost and left the same way. One of the only accounts we have of someone seeing Kelly is from Marianne Cox, who was also living in the building. And she was also a prostitute. Around midnight, she saw Kelly, drunk as a skunk, entering her room with a guy. Cox left, and Kelly was singing. She came back around 1 a.m., and Kelly was still singing. Then she left again. 
then came back again. This time, it was around 3 a.m. At this point, the singing had stopped and there weren't any lights coming from her room. She didn't hear anything at all. Was the killer at work at this point, cutting up Mary Jane Kelly? That's a really creepy thought. Okay. Seriously. Then there was Elizabeth Pratter, who lived right above Mary Jane's room. She claimed that a kitten woke her up between 3.30 and 4 a.m., and she heard someone cry out, Oh, murder! And then shrugged it off because, eh, it's Whitechapel, and people apparently yelled that at all the time. Again, safe as houses. I want to live there. I want two houses there. You can't have a house. You can only have an apartment that you're crammed into with ten other people. Fine. I want two apartments. With 20 people? Yes. Okay. All right. The other account is by George Hutchinson, who had been Mary Jane's friend for about three years. He saw Kelly with a man and followed them to her lodgings. All right. So that sounds really creepy, right? But it's not as creepy when you consider that Hutchinson didn't expect to see someone dressed like a gent walking down the street with Kelly. What was creepy was that Hutchinson tried to get a look at the guy as they passed him by before he began to stalk him through the streets. Apparently, the gent was trying to duck his head so Hutchinson couldn't see him. Hutchinson wasn't taking no for an answer, though, and bent down to get a look at the guy. The dude glared at him. Weird response, don't you think? Also, I'm just picturing this really creepy glare. Like, especially if that's Jack the Ripper, all I can picture is, like, this really creepy, crazed glare being aimed at George Hutchinson. Yeah, no, send me running. Mm -hmm. Anyway, and the finely dressed guy was carrying something in his hand. A bag, maybe? Was this Jack the Ripper? We don't know, though we really, really wish we did. So, any suspects? No, let's start with Joseph Barnett. The man Kelly had been shacking up with for about a year and a half. About a week before the murder, the not-so-happy couple had a fight about him not earning enough money. And Kelly's nighttime adventures. Remember that broken window we mentioned earlier that people were peeking through? Yeah, this was the fight that broke that window. Luckily for John, once they were able to track him down and the police were able to confirm his alibi, he was free and clear. Then there was another dude. Not so much a suspect as a particularly interesting witness statement, but still kind of a suspect. A woman reported that a man walked up to her and mentioned the murder to her, claiming to know all about it. What's super interesting, aside from Mr. Creepy being, well, you know, creepy, is that this man was carrying a shiny black bag. Why is this important? Because a black shiny bag had been mentioned more than once by witnesses, such as in the murder of Elizabeth Stride. A woman mentioned that the only person she'd seen in the area was a guy carrying a black shiny bag. Coincidence? Maybe not. But this brings us to the end of the canonical five. After Mary Jane Kelly's murder, the police really amped up their presence in Whitechapel so they could catch the murderer and hopefully prevent anyone else from falling victim to the Ripper. In the meantime... Dr. Thomas Bond created one of the first ever serial killer profiles, not just for Jack the Ripper, but in general. His profile for the Ripper consisted of 11 points, and they were based on the Canonical Five, so not Emma Smith and Martha Tabram. So this, the Canonical Five are Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, thank you, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly. I, I feel so bad, I always forget about Elizabeth Stride. Poor Elizabeth Stride, Stride. Renee's. <laughs> Kicking her out. I'm all the time. so sorry. Okay. So here they are. Number one, the same guy did all the killings. I mean, that's kind of a duh if it's a serial killer, but, you know, that's a really good start. Two, the victim's throats were cut when they were already on the ground. Three, he couldn't determine the amount of time that had passed between death and discovery, so the killer could strike at any point. Solid work with this one. Really good. Four, it didn't look like the women fought back. 
Five, the first four women were killed from the right, but since Mary Jane Kelly was on the bed and the wall was in the way, she was probably killed from the left. But again, here we don't get if he's right-handed or left-handed, just that he sat somewhere and killed them. Six, the killer probably wasn't covered in blood because of the way he did the killing, and any blood that got on him probably only went as far as his hands, arms, and maybe his clothing. Seven, his motive was mutilating the women, which he was able to do in four of the five murders. Eight, the killer didn't know a thing about human anatomy kind of contradicts, you know, all the cutting that he did and the way he was able to do it, but all right. Nine, the weapon was a super sharp straight-edged knife of some sort. Accurate. You know, really tracked the knife down with that one. No one else figured that one out. No. He, wow, Dr. Bond. Ten, the killer was probably a forgettable-looking human. Not creepy enough to attract attention, but not so good-looking that people would remember him. So he wasn't going to be Mr. November in the sexy homicidal maniac's calendar. He was strong and confident and probably a maniac. Driven by religious mania, actually. And he wore a coat. That was literally in his profile. He wore a coat. Dr. Bond nailed it. And the last point is 11. The killer was a loner with only a small amount of money to his name. If there was anyone in his life who had any inkling about his murder sprees, they were not going to say a goddamn thing. Just in case dude came after them. So we're, we're taking a step away from this profile. All right. On November 21st, 1888, people were in a frenzy since news hit the streets that another woman had been murdered. Good news. No one died. However, there was still some truth, a sliver of a sliver of truth to the reports. A woman by the name of Annie Farmer, another prostitute, had been attacked. Someone tried to slit her throat, but luckily for her, she was able to scream. When people heard her, they came a-running. The men who came to help tried to catch him, but he was able to disappear. Damn it. Even though the area was searched, they weren't able to find a trace of the man who attacked Farmer. So, was it Jack? A failed attempt? We will never know, as they weren't able to find him. But, probably not. I mean, based on the previous murders, that was way too sloppy an attempt for him. Then, in December 1888, there was a possible suspect believed to be Jack the Ripper. A woman who had been attacked came forward and gave a full description. This wonderfully charming individual admitted he cut up dead bodies and removed organs. What kind of bodies? Those belonging to people who died violently. Why? To understand how the body works. Naturally. Who else does that? It's totally normal. Now, the reason he was a real person of interest and not just cast aside as some psycho who enjoyed butchering cadavers was because when confessing his sins if he would even call them that, the dude also revealed that when he killed a woman in the early 1880s, he took her uterus. Sound familiar? Then there was Edward Knight Larkins. He worked as a clerk in the HM Customs Statistical Department, and he was obsessed with the Ripper murders. He had a theory that Jack was a Portuguese cattleman. Basically, he believed that this mystery man picked up a disease from one of the prostitutes he met with in the city and, as a result, started killing women to get his revenge. Now, you might be thinking, why Portuguese? That's so damn specific. Well, that's because, according to Larkin's research, the Spanish and Portuguese would slit the throats of their enemies and rip them open during the Peninsular War. How? With super sharp knives. So obviously, the Portuguese were violent murderers. Yeah, I think in his like letter, he basically said that like because the Portuguese are such savages, clearly they're at fault. So, you know. Makes sense to me. Yeah. All right. Of all the cattlemen who traveled to London by ship, there were only two men, Manuel Cruz Xavier and Jose Lorenzo, whose travel plans matched up with the Ripper murders. So, naturally, the police had to search every ship with cattlemen for the murderer. Sure thing, Edward. We'll do that. 
Okay, let's talk about the Americans for a second. Why? Because Americans always tend to have an opinion on things. And, oh, you know, they're right. But in this, what exactly can you have an opinion on from 3,000 miles away? But regardless. So while the London police were toying with the idea that Stride and Eddowes hadn't been killed by the same person, the Philadelphia Times published an article on December 13th, 1888, supporting the idea. And for some reason, they kept calling Catherine Eddowes, Catherine Beddowes. Who kept putting a B in front of her name? Fired. Anyway, they didn't think it was possible for the killer to make it from Burner Street, where Stride was killed, to Meter Square, just in time to come across Eddowes and kill her. Eddowes didn't have any reason to be wandering around Meter Square so late at night. Unless, of course, the killer had made an appointment with Eddowes in advance. Because obviously, Eddowes carried around an appointment book. Didn't all the prostitutes of Whitechapel, London? If they didn't, they should. So the only logical conclusion is that there were two killers working together to kill these women. And why would these women be the target of such mutilation? To scare them into leaving prostitution behind and finding another way to live. Obviously. The five, possibly seven, Whitechapel murders were essentially a message to the women of Whitechapel. Return thyself to God and you get to live another day. If you don't, you're dead. During all of this, the police were taking a beating when it came to public opinion. There had been no progress on the case. People weren't happy. They were still scared as hell. And then... Rose Millet, also known as Lizzie Davis, was found dead on December 20th, 1888, by a sergeant and constable walking their beat. Like some of the Whitechapel victims before her, her body hadn't cooled yet, but she didn't fit the bill. No throat slashing, mutilation, nothing. She had a handkerchief wrapped around her neck. That's it. After an examination, the death was ruled a murder. But how was it done? There were no signs of a struggle, nothing on the ground proving she was killed there. So was she killed somewhere else? She was, after all, missing an earring. All right. But that idea was thrown out since it would have been too much of a hassle to carry the body around until the murderer found the right place to dump it. I mean, honestly, how would that work? Eh, not the right alley. I don't like this one. I just picture <laughs> someone wandering around with a dead body in a sack. I mean, it's really morbid, but like, just trying to pick the perfect place to put this dead person. Ugh, okay. Doesn't make sense. Weird. All right. But then, okay, sorry. But there were some questions raised. If this was the work of Jack the Ripper, is it possible that he actually strangled his victims before slitting their throats? So Dr. Phillips revealed that Annie Chapman was kind of strangled first. So if Jack had strangled his victims to subdue them and then slit their throats in the way that would hide it, it was possible that Rose was one of his victims. But only very slightly. If you squint. Like, really, really squint. Serial killers don't usually change the way that they kill. Yeah, so even in 1889, the police were on high alert. The influx of patrols continued. The extra funding continued. The higher-ups had every reason to believe that the murders weren't going to stop. So they made sure Whitechapel was ready. It would be another seven months before there was a woman killed in Whitechapel that had any kind of similarity to the Ripper killings. Alice McKenzie, another prostitute, was found dead with her throat slashed on July 17, 1889. The killer had cut into her abdomen and around the genitals, but other than that... There was no damage to her face and anything else that would match the Ripper killings. After Dr. Phillips had a chance to view the body, he didn't believe Mackenzie was killed by the Ripper. The way she was cut was nothing like the way the Ripper cut. Also, serial killers escalate. They don't tend to de-escalate in their method of killing. Just, I guess, as a general rule to serial killing 101. Adrian, write a rule book. (laughs) I'm good. I wouldn't know where to begin. Right. This is what 11 years of watching Criminal Minds has taught us. Yeah. Although I think we stopped after that creepy puppet episode. Don't even mention that. All right. 
So anyway, here's a different story. On September 10th, 1889, the torso of a woman was found on Pynchon Street. That's right, just a torso. No head, no legs, just like the torso that had been found in 1888. For a split second, there was the thought that the body might be the work of Jack the Ripper. But after further examination, it was clear there was no connection between the Ripper murders and this woman. Let's talk about why. Obviously, how the body was found. Jack's victims were whole, aside from all the mutilation and organ stealing, of course. Whereas this body eh, wasn't. The victim wasn't killed and dismembered where she was found, so decomp had already begun, whereas the Ripper's victims were always found soon after they were killed. Because of how much blood wasn't left in the body, the doctors were able to figure out that the woman didn't die because her throat was slashed, nor was there any kind of mutilation to the genitalia. The only similarity was how precisely everything had been done. Both Jack the Ripper and this murderer knew what they were doing, but it was, in fact, two different people committing these Whitechapel murders. Inspector Henry Moore worked on the Whitechapel murder cases and took the lead in 1889 when Aberline started working on other cases. He was interviewed by a Philadelphia journalist and the article appeared in the Pall Mall Gazette on November 4th, 1889. What Moore had to say was interesting when it came to the women murdered by Jack the Ripper. He wasn't really blaming the women. Good, because it's not their fault. You know, if you get murdered, it's usually not your fault. So let's not blame the women. But he saw the opportunity they gave you know, to the Ripper to kill them. In their willingness to find a dark and secluded place to ply their trade and get some coin, the women were basically leading the killer to their own murder site. Moore was worried about the safety of the women in Whitechapel. He told many of them to go home time and time again, but the problem was that many, you know, they might not have had a home to go back to, or they needed to work in order to get some money to pay for a bed or to get something to eat or drink. And that, friends, is how the Ripper always had a long list of possible victims ready and waiting, even if they were unaware of it. While on the hunt for Jack the Ripper, there were many suspects, and one of them was actually Sergeant William Thicke of H Division, who would have been involved with the Whitechapel murder since Emma Smith in 88. The allegation was brought against Sergeant Thicke by an anonymous person in September of 89. The reason? No idea. All the accuser said was that he believed, or she believed, that Thicke was Jack the Ripper, and that the police should double-check their records to see where Thick was during all of the killings. Something that, in theory, should be easy enough to confirm. However, as far as we know, nothing ever really came about these allegations. Now, Dr. Forbes Winslow believed he knew who Jack the Ripper was, yet another in a long line. A friend of Winslow's confided in him that once upon a time, there was a man staying in his house. And this man, according to Winslow, was the man slinking through Whitechapel killing prostitutes. And in this regard, it wasn't just a random accusation without proof. Winslow was able to provide the man shoes, which we're guessing he left behind. They were special boots, apparently, that were literally quite noiseless. The guy also had a coat with patches of blood on it. But maybe he was a butcher. Who knows? Then why does he have noiseless shoes? To sneak up on the pigs? Mm, Probably not. So creepy, bloody attire? Check. Dude was also super weird. He would spend his time scribbling about how he hated women, but not any women, you know, not general. Specific, prostitutes. He also wasn't shy about voicing his disgust for these women. The creep factor was complete. He skipped out on his lodgings and was supposed to be out of the country, but someone saw him near Pynchon Street, days before the woman's torso was found. Could be a coincidence. Maybe not. Maybe he was a torso killer. Maybe he was the Ripper. The writings found in his room matched the handwriting of some of the Ripper letters sent to the police. So anything is possible at this point. His name was G. Wentworth Bell Smith. Adrian says... Not Jack the Ripper. 
It would be 1891, another two years before there was another murder the police believed was connected to the Ripper murders. Francis Cole was killed on February 1891 and found by Police Constable Thompson at 2.15 a.m. Her throat had been slit and she was still warm, but not much else had been done to her. Frances Cole was 25 years old, about 5 feet tall, had brown hair and brown eyes, and you guessed it, she was a prostitute. Thompson mentioned that while he was walking his beat, he heard footsteps moving away, but he wasn't able to see who the person was heading in the opposite direction of where he was about to find the body. None of the other PCs working near the area saw anyone. According to Dr. Phillips, who, as we know, is super familiar with Jack the Ripper's work, he didn't believe Cole was killed by the same man as the other women. James Thomas Sadler was considered a suspect not just for Cole's murder, but also for the Jack the Ripper murders. He was questioned several times over, but was eventually released. However, his wife didn't feel safe with him out on the streets since he had threatened to kill her. Lovely, right? Super warm marriage right there. Maybe he didn't kill anyone. But... We do know one thing, and that's he has a foul temper. The police also knew this, which is why he was considered such a promising suspect. Frederick Bailey Deeming was 45 years old when he was executed in 1892 for killing his wife and four children. He buried them under the kitchen floor before skipping off to Australia. What any normal spouse does, right? The police, though, pleased he was arrested. Didn't think he could have been Jack the Ripper. Whitechapel was a maze. Only someone who knew the winding streets could have disappeared into the shadows the way the Ripper did. Since Deeming was from Liverpool and only visited the city every now and then, he couldn't have been in the know enough to get around Whitechapel without anyone seeing him. There was a TV special about Deeming on the Discovery Channel in 2011 that explored the idea that he could have been Jack the Ripper. We will link you up to it in our show notes. The problem with looking back on the Jack the Ripper murders in today's day and age is that many of the files from the cases are gone, missing, stolen, etc. Pick your poison. Many of them went missing in the 1970s and 80s. We're talking specifically about the suspects' files. However, some of the files still exist. To a point. Paul Bonner was able to view them while working on a documentary on the Ripper for the BBC back in 1973. There isn't a lot of information left regarding the suspects. Of the many, we only know a few. There is one file left, and that talks about the three suspects Chief Constable M.L. McNaughton believed could be Jack the Ripper. McNaughton named these men in 1894 because the Sun newspaper reported that a man by the name of Thomas Cutbush was Jack the Ripper. So basically, he reacted to the article with his own suspects. Cutbush was a lunatic. Seriously, he was put in an insane asylum and escaped before being caught and arrested again. Why? Because he was going around trying to stab women. And don't think that we're the ones calling them lunatics and maniacs. That seemed to be, a, you know, a legitimate, valid medical diagnosis of the time. People were classified, what seems to be, from these files, lunatics and maniacs left and right. They were anyway. very liberal. Very yeah. liberal. But McNaughton didn't agree that Cutbush was the Ripper. He had three other guys in mind. First guy was M.J. Druitt. He was a doctor, so he would have had the anatomical knowledge to mutilate women. And the reason the murders stopped was because he went missing around the same time Mary Jane Kelly was killed. Why does that matter? Because his body was found in the Thames almost two months later. On the surface, he seemed like a normal guy whose disappearance coincidentally lined up with Kelly's death. Until you factor in the fact that he was a sexual deviant and was kept in a private asylum. Second dude was a man by the name of Kosminski. First name? We have no idea. He was a Polish Jew who was locked up in an asylum in March 1889. This guy was a bit of a mishmash. He hated prostitutes more than any other class of women and maybe sort of liked to kill people. 
or experienced lots of urges to kill people. Not quite clear on that one. Either way, good thing he was put away. Last man was Michael Ostrog, a doctor from Russia with a mysterious life. McNaughton wasn't able to trace his movements during the killings, but according to him, out of his three suspects, this dude was the worst of the bunch. Like the two before him, he was locked up in an asylum. Diagnosis? Homicidal maniac. Whereas many were on the fence regarding Stride as a Ripper victim, McNaughton believed she was. He thought the Ripper, after being interrupted, sought out another victim, in this case Eddowes, in order to satisfy himself. His theory, his profile really, is that Jack the Ripper became more and more manic with each murder. Former Chief Inspector John George Littlechild, who was in charge of Scotland Yard Special Branch from 1883 to 1893, decided to add one more suspect to the list in 1913 after seeing McNaughton's three suspects. It was an American by the name of Dr. Tumblety. The police knew exactly who he was. Why would the London police know him? Simple. He made a lot of trips to London, and they believed him to be a sexual psychopath. While Jack the Ripper was active, Tumblety was in London and was actually arrested for public indecency on November 7, 1888. But he didn't stay locked up. He was out in just a day, just in time for the Kelly murder. He ended up skipping out on his bail and leaving the country around the time the Ripper murders stopped. He was never seen or heard from again. But here's the problem. While McNaughton and Littlechild's suspects have merit, there really is no way to concretely connect the suspects to the murders. No evidence, nothing. At this point, it is all speculation. Dr. Robert Anderson was the junior assistant commissioner of the Scotland Yard Criminal Investigation Department during the time of the canonical five victims, Nichols, Chapman, Stride, Eddowes, and Kelly. In an article he wrote in 1901, Anderson stated that he believed the killer had been placed in an asylum. In the book he wrote in 1907, he analyzed the Ripper and revealed his thoughts on the killer. According to Anderson, the killer was a maniac, there's that word again, living in Whitechapel, specifically someone who lived near locations of the murders. What kind of maniac? The low-class Jewish kind of maniac, apparently. The police had a suspect in mind who was locked up in an asylum, but a witness refused to confirm the guy's murderous tendencies when he learned the suspect was a Jew. Essentially, the idea was that since the East End was comprised of so many Jews, they would rather protect one of their own, even if he was Jack the Ripper, than speak to the cops, according to Anderson. Let's talk about the witness for a second, the one who refused to confirm the suspect as being the Ripper. Here's what happened. The witness was brought in to identify Jack the Ripper. The witness looked at the suspect and said, yeah, yeah, that's him. But when he found out the suspect was Jewish, he refused to make his identification official. And this, my friends, is what Anderson's theory was based on. He took the witness's identification and then lack of willingness to follow through with it as proof positive of the suspect's guilt since he knew for a fact that there were members of the Jewish community who would not sell out their own people. Anderson faced backlash from the Jewish community, obviously. Their issue wasn't that Jack the Ripper might be a Jew, but that he claimed the Jewish people would protect such a monster. Also, that Anderson would reveal the suspected killer was Jewish when they were already facing so much hatred and judgment from the people as it was. Remember, people really did not like Jews. That's a general statement. Not all people, but yes, there were anti-Semitic elements. Well, I didn't say all people. I just said people. Yeah, but that kind of makes it a general statement. Anyway, while some people thought Jack the Ripper had fled London and gone to America or something of the sort to continue killing, the city police thought differently. They thought Jack the Ripper was insane, and apparently that was all they needed to find him. We don't have a name, and honestly, neither did the police. But they found a maniac they believed to be the killer and locked him away. And after that, the murder stopped. Ah, 
That's it. Case closed. Before he was locked up, he spent time in asylums from time to time as he was prone to fits of insanity. Again, you know, the medical diagnoses of this time. So accurate. He liked taking late night walks because why not? But once this individual was placed under constant watch, he started to change his behavior. Interesting, right? Would love to know who this guy was, but the police didn't have anything to actually tie him to the killings. Yet again. Inspector Frederick George Aberline was involved with the Whitechapel murder cases from September 1888 to March of 89, when he moved on to other things, as we mentioned previously. Aberline was of the belief that Kelly was the last of the Ripper victims, that anything after was just the work of someone else. While some believed the Ripper was a lunatic, there it is, Aberline believed differently. Jack the Ripper was a calculated killer, but his need to kill became manic by the time Mary Jane Kelly was killed. Aberline did have a suspect in mind. His name was George Chapman. He had the knowledge and skill necessary to commit the crimes as he had been medically and surgically trained in Russia. But the problem arises that while one of his wives claimed Chapman tried to kill her with a knife, Chapman's previous three wives were killed by poison. Then, on October 14, 1896, the final Jack the Ripper letter was sent to the police. Now, while there were many, many such letters sent to the police over the years, which wasted a whole lot of time, manpower, and money, there were, you know, this was the last letter believed to be linked to the original Dear Boss letter we spoke about earlier. The letter reads, Dear Boss, you will be surprised to find that this comes from yours as of old Jack the Ripper. Ha ha. If my old friend Mr. Warren is dead, you can read it. You might remember me if you try and think a little. Ha ha. The last job was a bad one and no mistake nearly buckled and mend it to be best of the lot and what curse it. Ah ha ha. I'm alive yet, and you'll soon find out. I mean to go on again when I get the chance. Won't it be nice, dear old boss, to have the good old times once again? You never caught me, and you never will. Ha ha. Your police are a smart lot. The lot of you couldn't catch one man where I have been, dear boss, you'd like to know. Abroad, if you would like to know. And just come back. Ready to go on with my work and stop when you catch me. Well, goodbye, boss. Wish me luck. Winter's coming. The Jews are people that are blamed for nothing. Ha ha. Have you heard this before? Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Now, all the letters that I have read here are from the Ripper source book. There's definitely some contention, you know, regarding this final note. At first glance, there are definitely things that are similar. Like the first letter, this was also written in red ink. There was the reference to the graffiti found on the wall after Eddowes was killed. The Dear Boss greeting and yours truly, Jack the Ripper sign off were also raising eyebrows. But when compared to the first letter and postcard, the handwriting didn't appear to be the same. So Inspector Moore sat down and picked through the letters with a fine-toothed comb. So yes, while there was some resemblance, Moore didn't believe the final letter was written by the same person who sent the very first Dear Boss letter, or the postcard. Different handwriting. The reference to the graffiti wasn't exactly what was found on the wall, and the fact that this letter was sent directly to the police. The other two Dear Boss letters were sent to Central News. All right, and that, our dear listeners, is all they wrote. Literally. We have reached the end of the White Chapel murder files. So here's where Renee and I are going to dive into speculation theory and psychological analysis. And as an FYI, we are not trained psychologists or psychiatrists. We have zero, you know, special training on that front. I think Renee took a psychology class in high school once, but I'm pretty sure that doesn't count. So here's our profile <laughs> of the killer. Man with mustache, maybe. He has to be a Whitechapel native. He wears a coat and pants. Trousers, for those in the UK. Um, also, you know, obviously a shirt under the coat, but the coat is very important. And pants. He carries a black bag. He has sharp knives. Walks on legs. That one. That last one is the most important one of yeah, all. Yeah, that he walks on legs. So basically with that profile, we've eliminated 
what, half of Whitechapel? Yeah, the women. Yeah, right? <laughs> but no, the women, children, and the elderly. There we go. So we're left with, what, a third of Whitechapel? Yeah, I think somewhere around there. Because guys, men in that time period had mustaches, most of them. Like, it, that was just the, the style of the time. You had a mustache. It was very, you know. Yeah, it was at the time period when it was like, if you don't have a mustache, you still have like a baby face. Yeah, it's kind of that. So there's our, you know, killer profile. Much shorter than Dr. Bond's. <laughs> Dude, isn't that the truth? Oh, I will go with um, intelligent, clever, and I mean, definitely has to be intelligent and clever. He, this can't be some homicidal maniac, okay? He can't be a lunatic locked up in an asylum because the, the methodology, the accuracy, the ability to sneak in and out is not given to someone prone to fits of lunacy, as they like to say. No, and he has to have some type of anatomical knowledge because, as we've mentioned throughout, this was someone who knew exactly what he was doing, where he was cutting, what he was looking for. So he didn't just, like, happen upon a uterus and be like, oh, I'll take that. <laughs> that looks interesting. I'm just going to take it with me. Souvenir. All right, so that's for the victim profile. Renee, All what's right. our victim profile? So the women were between 5'1 and 5'3. They were usually in their late 30s to mid-40s. They usually had dark hair, and they were prostitutes. Now, the only exception to some of these is Mary Jane Kelly, because as we said, she was in her, like, mid-20s. Who knows what color hair she had. Right? She was tall, apparently. We don't know what that means. for that time, that could have been 5'4". Who knows? (laughs) One inch outside the radius. (laughs) Right. Right. So, who the hell knows? So our theories, we have theories. We don't have any specific suspects because obviously, A, we were not the police of, you know, 1888 Whitechapel. But also because most of the suspects I don't think could be Jack the Ripper. So we have a couple of theories. Our first theory, I think this is the one Renee came up with. Yeah, it was. So one of my theories is that perhaps Jack the Ripper was actually a bartender. So as we mentioned, these women had an issue with drinking. So perhaps he was the bartender at the one of the pubs that they frequented and honestly real quick about the drinking if i were a prostitute in 1888 Whitechapel, i'd probably drink the day away too oh jesus so, christ give i me don't the blame bottle. those ladies. i don't want a cup like glass give me the fucking right? bottle and life was just gray it seems like in Whitechapel, london so right yeah. dude all right so perhaps he served them drinks he was he knew them on site for all if like he was a bartender he could have picked them out ahead of time he would have known if they were out that night okay and in terms of needing anatomical knowledge he could have honestly apprenticed at like a butcher shop or at mm-hmm. a slaughterhouse okay the like obviously a human body isn't exactly the same as an animal, but it's similar enough if it's like a pig or something that he could pick out what he needs and where to find it. So our next theory is that he was a butcher or a slaughterhouse worker um, because obviously they would have the skill and knowledge to, you know, cut creatures open in very, you know, more precise manner anyway than just some random person that picks up a knife and decides to start killing. Um, Supposedly, you know, he could have been a doctor, um, Someone from Whitechapel becoming a doctor at that time would be a less likely, you know, scenario just because of really honestly how poor the area was. So he could be a doctor that had fallen into hard times, sure, and moved to the Whitechapel area or, you know, preferred that living for many years. Who knows? But more likely butcher slaughterer. 
Especially considering how many slaughterhouses there were in that area. Like, yeah. it really wasn't uncommon to see someone walking around with, like, blood-stained clothes. Because it could be like, oh, okay, they work at the slaughterhouse right up the street. Right. So. Now, as for motivation, honest, again, we're just punching holes in the dark because there's no way to know. Um, there, we'll, we'll never know who Jack the Ripper was and why he killed and, you know, why at that time, what, you know, basically started that strange serial killer journey for him um there had to have been something that set him off because obviously before he wasn't killing and then suddenly he was so whatever his motivations whatever put him on that path we don't know if someone invents a time machine and can go back in time and observe this then you know obviously we will know observe but do not engage or maybe engage and stop him from murdering people i don't know but then at the same time you don't want to change history and okay Space-time continuing. Explosion. Anyway, so motivation that we came up with could be, possibility, that he was raised by someone who was a prostitute. Um, You know, maybe she brought her friends home with her um, and he saw this happening or heard this happening or whatever. And then maybe mom decided that drinking the alcohol was much more important than feeding the kid. And it's like really the reason we think this one is more likely than he picked up a disease like which is of course a possible reason it's it's possible that he picked up the clap from a prostitute and (laughs) then was like fuck these ladies even though that's not their fault they can't pick up the clap on their own that comes from some other guy right but um in terms of the whole mother thing is because he had such a specific victim profile and only Mm -hmm. deviated once so maybe his mother was a shorter woman she had you know dark hair obviously a prostitute yeah because i find it interesting that like they were in their late 30s like early 40s sort of thing yeah so he could have been choosing someone that looked like his mother reminded him Mm -hmm. or maybe just if not a mother a woman who raised him in general yeah you never know that's definitely you know a possibility and mary jane kelly why what honestly it could have just been opportunity maybe he was jonesing for a kill and she just happened to be there and he said fuck it i just i gotta kill someone the urge has struck and i must follow through because i do think that he was definitely driven to kill especially i agree with inspector aberline that by the time he got to Mary Jane Kelly, he had escalated to such a point. He had become manic in his kill that he had to do it in his brain. And that's why, you know, she was just, oh, poor Mary Jane Kelly, ripped apart the way that she was. So I definitely agree with Inspector Aberline. I definitely agree that, you know, he was um, had to be a clever person who could make his way in and out. And honestly, like a fucking ghost. Which is why he had to have been from Whitechapel. There's yeah. no way around that. He would have had to know how to get through the she- the streets, sorry, how to work the shadows in his favor. Mm-hmm. Like, Yeah, because the Whitechapel we know today is not the Whitechapel of 1888. There are buildings that have been torn down, warehouses, slaughterhouses that have been torn down that, you know, existed then that don't exist now. Street names have been changed, you know, so definitely had to be someone who could sneak in and out of those alleyways and essentially what amounted to a close like it would have been in Edinburgh. Um, you know, where he could get in and out of those little tight spaces. And also what he had to work with that serial killers today don't is the fact that lights in some areas were basically non-existent or it was so dim because, again, these are like candles on freaking, you know, lamps. These are not electric lamps, you know, standing all over the city like it is today. 
it, there were like Burner Street where Elizabeth Stride was killed. I don't think we mentioned it, but it was very dark. I mean, obviously we mentioned it a bit because um, Lewis came home and had to light a match and then get a candle. But honestly, he could be in an alleyway, cutting away, killing someone. And if you don't go down that alley, you might not be any the wiser to that, which is so creepy. Honestly, like um, speaking of... Was it Stride you were just talking about? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like something, it was something either Adrian and I read a few years ago, maybe it was on one of like the Jack the Ripper specials, but there are some historians who actually believe that Jack the Ripper was actually hiding in the shadows behind What's-His-Face when he came home to check to see like the body. Oh, yeah. Like imagine how fucking creepy that is. Like if he was there, he had to know how to hide. Right, like crouching down in the shadows. Heebie-jeebies. But... Yeah, so, because um, we did do, we were in London, um, well, she visited me in London when I was studying there years and years ago, but uh, we did a Jack the Ripper tour. Um, it was different from the one I originally did. There are quite a few tours out there, so if you're in London, I definitely, definitely, we both do recommend that you go on a Jack the Ripper tour because they are awesome, okay, and it's, they're going to take you to areas where, you know, the murders took place, and honestly, you, you it's not the same. It is not, the, the building Mary Jane Kelly lived in, gone. It's no longer there. They think it's a warehouse now or something. But definitely go on a tour, a walking tour for Jack the Ripper. Um, the one we went on together uh, was, I think it started at dusk. Um, and she actually had pictures of all the murder victims. Which you could um, choose to look at or not look at. So it's not like you were forced to. Right. So, and, you know, that's very sensitive of them and uh, naturally so. But, um, you know, she had pictures and we went to places where... I didn't go on the first tour I went on, uh, which was, I think the tour was at like 10 or 11 o'clock at night. It was very eerie because the streets were basically empty at that point. Uh, my friend almost got run over by a cyclist, but um, <laughs> that was like the only person we met on the streets. And he, we, you know, we went near Liverpool Street Station, Old Spitalfields Market, um, but it was different areas than the second tour took us in. So you might even want to do a couple of tours just to get, you know, that full experience. And each tour guide is going to be very different in the way that they do the tour and how they do the tour. Like he was very descriptive in his, um, you know, how when he was describing the murders. Uh, she was a little less so, a little bit more Victorian, we'll call it in her descriptions, but she didn't really have to because then she went, look at this photo. If you want to. And if you guys are super scared of doing it at night, I at least when Adrian, when I went to go visit her, there were tours available during the day as well for the people who didn't want to, you know, have that extra creep factor. So mm -hmm. I'm sure that they're still running those because, you know, there are people who are afraid of the dark, especially when talking about, you know, serial killers. So look into that as well. Yeah. And, and we did. Um, I think there's a Jack the Ripper Museum now that's been opened. We have to go. Yeah, just for that reason alone. But yeah, so those are really our theories. There is a theory out there. I really hate this theory. I like I have a burning sacred hatred fire for this theory. Renee, please explain this theory. Okay. <laughs> Adrian can't even talk. She's so angry. <laughs> so it's the theory that Jack the Ripper was also H.H. H. Holmes. So for those of you who do not know who H.H. H. Holmes is. He was basically like the first American serial killer. Yeah, so he built a... Murder, murder castle. Yeah. That's what it's known as, a murder castle. Yeah. He literally built a hotel so that he could kill people. This was in Chicago, right? Yep. During yeah. the Chicago World Fair. Right? Devil in the White City. Right? Yeah. So the book Devil in the White City, that's about H.H. H. Holmes. I believe Hulu is coming up with a TV show about it. Yeah. And I think Leonardo DiCaprio is going to be in it. And I'm No, he was. He was <gasps> supposed to be. And now he think he's just producing. Oh, well, I don't care. I still want to see this. They need to make it happen. <laughs> but it's the thing. 
So the reason this also gets me so angry is because Jack the Ripper had a very specific victimology, whereas H.H. Holmes... Anyone and everyone that walked into his hotel. Right? So first you're working with the idea that this American is going to London, killing a ve- killing specific type of people in a specific type of way, and somehow knows how to get around. Did he get a tour guide? Hey, I need to go kill people. <laughs> Show me around. I need a map, man. Like, no, that's not a thing. So it's just not feasible. Because it's... The way Adrian and I talk about it is... Jack the Ripper was very likely a psychopath. Something triggered him, and he just mm. kind of became more manic. But H.H. H. Holmes was creepy his entire life, <laughs> and murdery his right? entire life. He was we'll a cover H.H. So- H. Holmes in a in a different season. I'm so happy for this. But he he was a sociopath. Okay, like it didn't matter who man, woman, white, black, tall, short, fat, thin, strangling. If you walked on legs, right? You were. You fit the bill. Pretty much. He didn't he, he he didn't care how he killed you. He could strangle you, stab you, smother yeah. you. D- d- I don't know. Maybe throw you in a pot of acid. I don't know. Okay? He didn't care. He just wanted to kill. All right? So there is no fucking way that H.H. H. Holmes, who did this shit in America, did the Jack the Ripper murders. Okay? You, you, you can't. You, it's just not. Yeah, because the theory is that he was in London, apparently, during this time or around this time. But again, he just shows up in London in a very short time, apparently, knows his way around Whitechapel and then goes off on a killing spree. That's not even like, you know, one death after another. He had the entire month of October, he, what, went for afternoon tea every evening, felt calm, and then didn't decide, you know, didn't kill. So, no, I don't think that it was H.H. Holmes at all. I hate that theory. I'm sorry. If if you like that theory or if you're on that board with that theory, don't talk to Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> she, she won't be able to handle it. And there's um there's actually a documentary series called uh, what is it American Ripper yeah yeah so I only watched five minutes of that and then had to angrily shut it off. Um, oh, was that the dude who was like? Yeah, it's this guy who apparently is like H. H. Holmes's great 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 however great grandson. He he he's like very giddy about this. By the way, when he's talking about it, like ooh, I was related to H. I'm related to H. H. Holmes, and you know I have this serial killing ancestor, and how exciting! No, I'd be like me H. H. Holmes relations none, <laughs> but <laughs> I guess that's different per- people for you. But um, so he's like really happy about this, and then like becomes gleeful at the fact that he believes H.H. Holmes was also Jack the Ripper. So, you know, watch it if that's what you want to do. You know, I did. I can't say for sure what the rest of the series is like because I only watched five minutes. I, I couldn't get past that. But it is out there. Um, it used to be on Hulu. I don't think it is anymore, but definitely search it maybe on YouTube. Um, American Ripper, that's what it's called. You know, when Adrian first told me about this, my first thought was someone had a child with H.H. Holmes. Right? (laughs) (laughs) How did he not kill this person? Right? I don't know. All right. But also, like, the way they describe sometimes, like, Jack the Ripper, like, he was a homicidal maniac. I just picture this, like, crazed escaped lunatic from an asylum running through the streets holding up knives with this, like, crazy look in his eyes. Maybe and like, they're, like, half bugged out or something. And, like, a straight jacket, like, still <laughs> on him. <laughs> like... I think you're describing some sort of ca- or character that escaped from Arkham Asylum in Gotham or something. It's very I think that's where we went. <laughs> well, wasn't that, um... What's his face? Scarecrow? I don't know. Or the Riddler? I don't remember. I can't no, remember. Knows. But uh yeah. No. 
All right. Then there was this other dude, Frederick Bailey Deeming. Okay, we mentioned him a little bit earlier as a possible suspect. You know, he killed his wife, kids, buried them, went off. All right. He died in an Australian prison. I hate this idea. I hate this idea. I hate this idea. I hate it so much. <laughs> so the bane of my existence is H.H. H. Holmes. The bane of Renee's is Frederick Bailey Deeming. It just doesn't fucking make any goddamn sense, okay? He buries them under, under the, the fucking floorboards or whatever, yeah. or the dirt, whatever the hell was their kitchen floor, and then... Their dirt? Where are they living, Renee? <laughs> In a hovel. <laughs> Apparently. Some sort of 13th century... What? <laughs> I don't know. Whether they... Okay, if they had wood, is it possible to still have stone at that point? It depends. If you were the found Like, the first floor, maybe. Yeah, so... Who the fuck knows, okay? I don't care. All right, as we... We've said it. We agree with Aberline. You know, it it escalated. And again, there's there was um a show about this, and it's just I I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. It makes me so fucking angry because they were like, yeah, he might have gotten an STD, and I'm like, yeah, okay, that he one... could have. He could have. Don't get me wrong. He could have. Yeah. But like, yeah, it's unlikely. It's just not a likely thing. Um, that one we did watch all the way through. I will say, and then we bitched and moaned about it afterwards, but. Because they do have some interesting things in there. But, like, for the most part, you should have seen me and Adrian when they were, like, on the whiteboard talking about, like, his profile. Adrian and I were, like, pausing it every two seconds. Like, no. Yeah, because, I mean, all that, you know, those seasons of Criminal Minds that we watched, you could give us a PhD right now. Dr. Adrian in the house. Right? Okay, we also watched Blacklist. (laughs) (laughs) Any show with profilers just immediately give us a degree. Um, No, but so that does bring up the question, though. Why did Jack the Ripper stop killing? Mm-hmm. So, again, let's speculate. So, for speculation's sake, maybe he died. Okay, maybe he moved, but if he moved... Why didn't it start somewhere else? Right. Um, maybe he was locked up in prison, and he died in prison, or he was released too late in life to actually start murdering again. Or, it could very well be, he went dormant. He escalated to this manic point with Mary Jane Kelly that maybe that urge was satisfied, whether it was for a time or forever, and then he just stopped killing. Sometimes that happens. Serial killers do do that sometimes. Whether it's for a period of time, they stop killing or, you know, they just stop killing for 10 years and then they pick up again. So anything is possible. Right. We don't know. We want to know. We really, really want to know. Yeah. I just don't know if there was a time machine that I'd want to go back in time no. and see this guy. No. Probably not. No. Yeah. Mm-mm. I'd have nightmares. Mm-hmm. I'm, again, I'm just picturing this creepy guy with googly eyes, mustache. Mm. Looks well, like a creep. Well, the funny thing is, like, because when we mentioned that Hutchinson, like, got a sneak peek and, like, the guy glared at him, if you guys ever s- actually look up American Ripper and, like, the picture of H.H. H. Holmes on there. Oh, my there, God. It's super freaking he is creepy. creepy. So is Frederick Bailey Deeming, by the way. Oh, His he picture, is he's also creepy looking. He is creepy. I, that's one of those words like, yeah, I can see he killed his family. <laughs> he looks like a murderer. <laughs> one of those. Right? For but, sure. But it's like the guy um, in American Ripper, like that creep. Like, that's what I'm like. That's all I picture for Jack the Ripper. But at the same time, I'm like, he can't be that creepy. Otherwise, alarm bells. Right. Yeah. The prosti- yeah. They'd be like, um, no, sir. Thank you for your strange offer. <laughs> but uh, I've got another appointment <laughs> <Right>? in my <laughs> book. <laughs> Let me just take out my Blackberry, shall I? Nope. Nope. Booked from 10 to 5 for the for rest the of the week. week. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, you can tell we haven't thought about this at all. Not at all. I, we probably, we have discussed Jack the Ripper more in the past, I don't know, two months, three months, than mm, is probably... Healthy? Yeah. Because also, we were discussing creepy. Ready? Ready for a creepy story. So we were discussing Jack the Ripper because we were, you know, doing our research and everything. And we were putting it all together and um, really talking about it. We should honestly just record ourselves on the daily because we have all of these discussions. But um, it was Halloween. It was like 11.45 at night. Okay, 15 minutes to what we would call the witching hour. And it was windy outside. It is obviously this was weather related, but it was very creepy because as we were talking about Jack the Ripper, the lights in our house kept flickering on and off. And then we were in the middle of saying something about Jack the Ripper and the way he was killing and the what he did. And, and then the lights just went off completely. And it was like, what the fuck is this? So Renee had to turn on her flashlight, but then luckily the lights came back on um, within, I don't know, like 10 seconds. But the but it continued happening while we were talking about jack the ripper the moment we stopped our discussion about jack the ripper the lights were fine p.s that was 1201 yeah so maybe we were inviting the spirit of serial killer into our house (laughs) who knows (laughs) but it was definitely creepy and i'm not a believer in you know ghosts and stuff but like that that was above and beyond the pale so that you decide were we inviting Strange killing ghosts or weather? Probably weather. Right? We didn't we didn't use a Ouija board. Promise. <laughs> Did it light any candles? Did it stand in front of a mirror? Spin three times. But anyway, on to the recommendations. Renee, what's your recommendation? So my recommendation is actually The Bank Holiday Murders by Tom Westcott. So this book, for the most part, is about Emma Smith and Martha Tabram. So it's those first two women in the Whitechapel murder files that were killed. But read it with an open mind and don't take everything like at face value just because he he very obviously goes into great detail about the two women and the lives they led, how they were killed, the inquests, all of that. Jesus Christ, it just goes on forever. But he also talks a lot about Pearly Paul. So that was, if you guys remember, the woman who um, correctly identified Martha Tabram. And it kind of goes into how Pearly Paul might have actually been involved or known more than she was willing to tell the police in terms of who the Jack, you know, who Jack the Ripper was. Because at one point she just kind of disappears because she does kind of come up, I think, until Annie Chapman. And then, like, you don't see anything about her from stride forward. So, again, read it with an open mind. It's an interesting theory. It's a fun read. Adrian? Yeah. Oh, that one, by the way, the Bank Holiday Murders, if you have Kindle Unlimited, you can get it for free via Kindle Unlimited. I mean, obviously you pay for Kindle Unlimited, but regardless. Anyway, so my recommendations are Jack the Ripper Sourcebook, um, and I forgot the author's name. Good. Oops. But I think there's only one. It's This one is fantastic. This is where I think you should start if you're doing, you know, beginning your Jack the Ripper research because... It is the primary sources of the time. It's the newspaper articles. It's the police reports. It's the messages the police constables were sending back and forth. Um, you know, there's stuff in there about rewards and things that we didn't get into just because it wasn't relevant and no one put up a reward because, you know, the police weren't about that at that time. So um, definitely recommend Jack the Ripper Sourcebook. Um, even though it's in the language of the day, it's not really that much different. 
from the way we speak now and write. Um, just, I guess you could call it more proper. But so you guys don't have to worry about the author because I will be linking those up in the show notes for you guys. Yeah. So all the books will be there. Yeah. And then my second recommendation is, again, author unknown because Adrian forgot, In the Boots of a Bobby. And that is from the policeman's viewpoint of the investigation and the murders. It starts with background about, you know, how the police got started and happened and all the you know, constables and the watchmen and the corruptness and blah, blah, blah. But um, it's it's very, very good. Um, and again, it gives you that policeman's outlook on the investigation and how they viewed the murders and, you know, what steps they took as a result. So there's actually one more that I'll recommend. And it's just, Adrian said start with, you know, the source book. Source book. But I'll say end with one of the ones, um, like one of the other ones we read, which was, I think it was Jack the Ripper A to Z. So that is quite literally, they take you through the alphabet Mm -hmm. of every single person, book, documentary, whatever on Jack the Ripper that has ever been written, produced, what have you, so that you can learn more about the, a lot more of the suspects and more about the police involved, more about the, you know, the victims. So at this point where it's like when you have all this information, you can actually go into A to Z and maybe even start forming your own ideas, kind of tossing out suspects and being like, eh, no, or doing something like that. Because it it's an interesting way to approach it, I'll say. Yeah. And then there's a book we didn't get a chance to read, which we really, really wanted to. So but bad. um Yeah, it's called The Five, and it's about the women who were murdered, their lives, you know, what was going on at the time for them. Um, It really takes a dive into them and gives them the justice they deserve to be heard. So we didn't get a chance this time around to read that. We will read that on our leisure. Um, Because apparently that's what we read for fun. Yeah. But so we've heard great things about it. We did buy it, but unfortunately we just, we didn't have the time. But The Five is about the women. Check that one out. And if you do read it before us, let us know how it was. Right. So just so you know, it actually gives you more about their background lives because we've mentioned, you know, prostitution, prostitution, prostitution. But it tells you about them beyond that, what other jobs they actually had to support themselves. Yeah, because it wasn't just, you know, Mary Jane Kelly prostitute. There were more than that. All right. So then there's another issue, because as we said, there are 11 women in this file. And while I don't believe any of the women after Mary Jane Kelly, have anything to do with the Ripper murders. There is the question of, were Emma Smith and Martha Tabram early, vi- like, Ripper victims? Mm. So, Adrian, what are your thoughts? Um, I, I mean, it's honestly difficult to say because Emma Smith wasn't killed in the typical fashion. Um, so I'd say she's less likely to be so. I guess you could argue the fact that he was finding his feet and, you know, I guess figuring out what works. But I'd say out of you know, both of them, that she's less likely to be a victim. That might have just been a coincidental crime of opportunity. Uh, Martha Tabram, I would say, is much more likely um, to be a Jack the Ripper victim because, you know, based on the way that she was killed and really, honestly, the way where she was found because he didn't go out of his way to hide his the victim's bodies. Um, so definitely daring to do it in a stairwell of a tenement house but i would say that martha tabram is much more likely to be the first let's say jack the ripper kill yes i do agree with that just because of everything that i read about emma smith like there was this theory that essentially jack the ripper was one of the men who actually attacked emma smith and that like he got a taste for killing from it which again is possible because there was a sexual aspect to 
her attack. Mm-hmm. Um, like, the way that they um, violated her genitals, it actually tore the skin between her vagina and her anus. So it was literally all just one. That's why she was bleeding so profusely, um, aside from the fact that it ruptured stuff even higher up. Okay, so if you didn't say ow in your head just now. As Inspector Reed put in his report, the skin between the front end and the back end. All Victorian politeness. <laughs> yeah, we don't do that here. <laughs> so um, I'm, I don't really think Emma was. But it's, like, it's also the fact with like Martha Tabram that no one saw him. The guy who killed him. There was no evidence, no bloody footprints, nothing. Right. It suggests that, based on the killings, that he is a man who works alone, not in a group, and then suddenly decides to become lone serial killer number one. Right. Because, yeah, no. Because I'm more so on, like, him finding his feet with Martha than I am with Emma. Yeah, I would agree with that. So, I'm sorry, Emma Smith. I'm sorry to all these women, all 11 of them. Seriously. May they rest in so much peace. And may Jack the Ripper... Burn in hell. Right? Can I get an amen? Amen. All right. So as always, we will link you up to the books we used for this episode. We'll also include photos or links to photos because some of them are quite gruesome in the show notes and links to a few documentaries as well and a map. Okay, we've got a map in the show notes showing where each murder took place. So you can really decide. Were Stride and Eddowes killed by the same man? Hmm. All right, guys, thanks so much for hanging out with us on this episode of Dear World Love History. Make sure you follow us on social media because we are going on hiatus until February. We're sorry. We love you, seriously, but we, we need a break. We need some mental time away. But again, a bonus episode will be out on the first Saturday of December. Well, an announcement episode, um, you know, really telling you our next topic and any updates. So stay tuned for that. And if it suits our fancy, we may, may. We're not putting this in concrete words. Please don't take it as a fact right now. 100%. It's not a promise. It's not a promise. It is a maybe. It's, if, a, it's a possible. Yeah. We might put out a bonus episode in January just so that it's not a complete dry spell. All right, guys. So we have reached the end and it's historians out. While you may think that history is eh, vaguely interesting, the truth is it's fun and metal AF. Echoes of the past are still reverberating through our world today, and Body Count is here to show you how our shared history affects your life on the daily. Whether you know it or not, so are you past the point of higher education? Feel like you didn't learn anything from your high school history teacher? Or just didn't give a flying crap about it? Are you tired of always missing out on the yellow history pie piece and trivial pursuit? Are you the horror of all your friends' game nights? Did you once proudly announce that Napoleon Bonaparte was a super short little nutsack? When in reality, he was an average-sized nutsack. Have you been thinking about living under a faulty dam? Or perhaps an active volcano? Well, we have good news. It's not too late for you or your homeowner's insurance. Come on over and listen to Body Count, the podcast that explores death and disaster through the ages with only one rule. Someone, or usually a lot of someone's, dies. Because history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. A proud member of the MSE Podcast Network. Are you a true crime junkie? Do you talk about true crime with your friends all of the time? And are there cases that have stuck with you for so many years because of geographic or emotional closeness? If so, then welcome to Fatalities. I'm Elisa Lucas, and this is the podcast where I explore true crime cases over tea with the help of my friends. Because without tea, friends, and good conversation, 
there's nothing but darkness and chaos. So grab a warm cup of tea and join me as my friends and I discuss the cases that have struck a chord with us and the related issues that might help us understand why such horrible crimes have occurred. The podcast is dropped every other Wednesday and is available on such podcatchers as Apple, Podbean, Spotify, and so much more. You may follow Fatalities on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, but don't forget that T's is spelled T-E-A-S because here is where we spill the tea. (laughs) 